The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. Maya Angelou, the poet and civil rights activist, was once asked, What do you think the greatest quality of Martin Luther King Jr. was? And her answer was, Courage. Courage. Because without courage, none of his other great qualities could have come to the surface. She says, courage is the most important of all the virtues. Because without courage, you can't practice any other virtues consistently. You can't be consistently kind or fair or humane or generous. Not without courage. Because if you don't have it, sooner or later you will stop and say, hey, The threat is too much, the difficulty too high, the challenge too great. Martin Luther King Jr., as we know, was a man who had a dream, but had it not been for his courage, that dream would still be but a dream. And it's hard to imagine coming to this inaugural event this week apart from the courage of Martin Luther King, to act as though the dream were reality or would by his actions become reality someday soon. We need courage. I was just thinking as the offering was going by of a dinner party my parents attended and the next day many of the guests were in the same pew and the hostess uh, was at the end of the pew and uh, at the opposite end was one of her guests And she pulled out from her pocket, conspicuously, a silver spoon that she had stolen from the evening before and dropped it in the offering plate just to test the hostess to see if she would have the courage to pull it out of the offering plate as it went by her. We need courage in church. Is there not some social rule that says thou shalt never take anything out of the offering plate? And we are bound by the social rules of society. And society says, just keep things the way they are. If you and I are to live out the call of love that Jesus Christ calls us to, we're going to have to break the rules. We're going to have to live into the subversion, the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. We need courage. We're talking about the church of Seattle. What does Jesus Christ say to us, the church of Seattle? If it's not for courage, we will not be able to say what I believe Jesus Christ wants us to say To Seattle itself, which is, you're going to know we're here. You're going to know we're here because Jesus Christ is here. To get there, it will take courage. We will have to risk. So love is preeminent among the uh, messages that are given to the seven churches. Love is first. And so, as we saw last week, Jesus Christ speaks a word of love. Return to your first love to the church in Ephesus. And then... This letter carrier would have taken this circular correspondence on his route clockwise to seven churches of Asia Minor. The next stop would have been Smyrna, just 35 miles uh, to the north, also on the coast. A beautiful, a beautiful city. And as Jesus Christ speaks to this city and the church into whose hands he's entrusted it, Jesus has no complaint. And there are only two cities 
to whom Jesus has no complaint and of whom he will say, I have this against you. One is Philadelphia and the other one is Smyrna. But his voice speaks a word of encouragement to them because he knows that they need it as they are about to enter into a season of trial. And if you're not in one today, you will find yourself in a season of trial. And so how can we find courage? Well, let's look at our text. And as I said to you, during these seven weeks, let's read the text aloud. Let's stand and honor Jesus Christ who gives us this encouragement today and read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. You'll find that on page 995 in the Pew Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep this, what is written in it, for the time is near. Please be seated. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, Courage and cowardice are antithetical. Courage is an inner resolution to go forward in spite of obstacles and frightening situations. Cowardice is submission, surrender to circumstance. Courage breeds courageous self-affirmation. Cowardice produces destructive self-abnegation. Courage faces fear and thereby masters it. Cowardice represses fear and is thereby mastered by it. Courageous people never lose the zest for living even though their life situation is zestless. Cowardly people, overwhelmed by the uncertainties of life, will lose the will to live. Then King says this, we must constantly build dikes of courage to hold black back the flood of fear. Dikes of courage to hold back the flood of fear. Notice that Martin Luther King, noted for his courage as a man who is freely acknowledging the presence of fear in his life. Living courageously is, is not living without fears, it's living through our fears. If you've ever been to Amsterdam, you've seen how the land is managed. Amsterdam, of, of course, uh, the Netherlands are... Uh, below sea level. And, and so these bulwarks against the water are built of earth and rock, stone, to hold back the floods of water. And so King says, yes, there's fear. 
all around us, flowing towards us constantly. But the courageous person will be that person who can build bulwarks against the fear and say, this far and no further. So I will live through my fear. The hero is not somebody who's invincible. The hero is somebody who makes themselves vulnerable. They submit themselves to forces that they know are greater than themselves because they believe that there are forces greater than those. And that's the courage of Martin Luther King Jr. But more significantly, it's also the courage of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But how can we have such bulwarks against fear? In Revelation 2.10, Jesus says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. In the Greek, this is uh, the syntax here recognizes the presence of Greek. It's a kind of a, we call a continuous aspect. It's really saying, do not continue to fear everything that's about to happen to you. Do not continue to be afraid. There is, in the grammar, a recognition of the presence of fear, but, but a command not to be controlled by that fear, not to be determined by our anxieties. Fear is real. This is not just bare admonition, though. Jesus Christ, in this word to the church in Smyrna, gives resources for confronting our fear. What are those resources? We're going to look at those now. And before we do, I want to remind you that the genre of revelation is apocalypse. And as I said last week, that means revealing, uncovering, unveiling of something. It's like that silver stuff that's on a McDonald's cup. You scrape it off and there's something beneath. And so Jesus is saying, let me scrape the silver stuff off of life for you and bring out what's really there. True truth. And the scraping motion is found, I think, in this text through a dual negation. This is, this is the first clue, really, that something more is happening than meets the eye. A dual negation. We see it first in this um, verse 9 where Jesus says, I know your poverty even though you're rich. And then the second one is in... Uh, the end of the verse where he says, I know you're being persecuted by Jews, but they're not Jews. And you begin to suspect something's going on. He's trying to show us something to make us bold. You see, in Smyrna, the church was poor. Oh, we can be poor because we say, I'm going to make the ethical decision in business and not, not necessarily always the profitable decision. So perhaps some of the Christians in Smyrna were poor because of that. I think more likely there's another reason. You see, Smyrna was noted as a very patriotic city. It was known as a city that took its Roman citizenship seriously. They had a temple there, been built in 195 B.C., Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. Rome itself was worshipped in this temple. And then a contract was out in uh, AD 25 to build a new temple to the uh, Emperor Tiberius. And just like we would have cities that would compete for the Olympic Games, so in Asia Minor, many of these great prominent cities came forward with proposals to build this temple. Foremost among them was Smyrna, and they won the account. And so they build this temple. 
They're very proud of their Roman citizenship. And so, as you know, at this time, under Diocletian, at the end of the first century, the pretext of the superiority, the absolute supremacy of the Caesar is requiring now the citizens of Rome to come with incense, throw it on the fires in front of the bust of the Caesar and pronounce, Caesar is Lord. And the followers of Jesus Christ in Smyrna undoubtedly balked and said, we cannot say those words. And so they're marginalized. Well, you're not going to get the business contracts. Well, you're not going to get the employees. And so they're poor. And yet Jesus says, don't you believe it for a second. You are rich. The second uh, negation we find... (laughs) Surprising that these are Jews, but not Jews, Jesus says. Well, I would have expected that the persecutors of the church in Smyrna would have been Romans. But the truth of the matter is that Romans didn't enforce this law very vigorously. It was was uneven. It was anecdotal. But the Jews, they had a beef with the Christians. Remember that when Jesus of Nazareth came teaching that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the Jewish community divided. We were all Jewish, but some said, we believe he's the Messiah. Others said, we think he's a pretender. Saul of Tarsus was one in the latter camp. And for the, the true Jew, the pure Jew, this pretense of the Nazarenes was so offensive, it was a blight on Judaism. So this pernicious cult had to be uh, removed purged from the synagogue. And so Paul, Saul, prior to his conversion, would pursue Christians even to the point of death. And he wasn't alone at that. So the church of Jesus Christ, those followers who were Jewish, they had persecutors within the Jewish community. And we see that throughout the pages of the scripture. Paul would even question whether a Jew is a Jew just because they're circumcised. In Romans chapter 2, he says a true Jew is not one just outwardly. A true Jew is someone inwardly who has the heart that's been circumcised. But really what's going on here is Jesus is not challenging who these Jewish believers are, but he's challenging what they're doing. To our ears, this phrase, synagogue of Satan, is a troubling phrase. It just doesn't sound very ecumenical. It's hard to read, isn't it? You go, wow, that's strong. But this is not anti-Semitic language. You need to understand the context in which this was used. If you read carefully, you'll find in the Old Testament very similar expressions within the Jewish community, within the Israelite community. This is intramural language. God would send prophets to call his people to account and say, you're not acting faithfully uh, with my covenant. You're not acting like the people of God. You're you're not acting like Jews, Jesus himself would say. But really, these are not called the synagogue of Satan because they're not followers of Jesus Christ. They're referred to as synagogue of Satan because of what they're doing, their activity. Satan is an accuser. And we find, as we read this text, that the opponents of the church in Smyrna are slandering. They're accusing Christians of something. The Jews had a privileged status in the Roman Empire at this time. They were not required to sacrifice to the Roman Caesar as God. There was a special provision that granted the Jewish citizens of Rome 
to just render incense to Caesar as emperor. And so they could do so in good conscience. Not wanting to lose this privilege. Wanting to take advantage and purge the church, the uh, synagogue of these Christians. Wanting to curry favor with the Roman proconsul. They would accuse Christians of not being Jews. They would say, that one's not a Jew. And then that Christian would fall under persecution. Synagogue of Satan refers to the activity of the Jews in Smyrna. The word Satan is an actual transliteration of a Hebrew word, Satan, which means adversary or accuser. And when in the uh, 3rd to 2nd century B.C., Jewish followers uh, uh, began to translate the Old Testament into Greek called the Septuagint, they chose an interesting word to render Satan. They chose the word diabolos, which means accuser. So they were understanding Satan as one whose function is to accuse, to slander, to lie. So Jesus says, these are not Jews. He's turning the very phrase that they're using against Christians when they say, these are not Jews. Jesus is saying, these are not Jews who make the accusation. They're a synagogue. They're affiliating themselves with the activity of the dark one. So we see this double negation that Jesus is inviting us to scratch the silver and see what lies beneath. He's pointing us out. He's pointing out the dynamics of fear, that which paralyzes us. And it has to do with the ministry of Satan, the accusations. And he brings to those accusations negations, three of them, three affirmations. These are necessary to understand if we are to live with courage. We live through our fears by exchanging affirmations for accusations. I want to give you these three. I wonder if you recognize them. We have a tendency to internalize them in ourselves. These three accusations assault our sense of value, our sense of safety, and our sense of potential in the world. If we can see what Jesus sees... If we can affirm what Jesus affirms, we will live with courage. First of all, our value. Against the accusation that you are poor, Jesus says, you are rich. You're rich. How many of us see ourselves as worthless, without value? We may be materially poor, as the Smyrnans were, we may have sense, a sense of spiritual poverty as well. We may look at ourselves, we may look in the mirror and say, there you go again, that's just what I would assume you'd be doing. We believe in the grace of Jesus Christ. It says we're not saved by any of our works, we're saved because of the embrace of God in Christ. And yet, we have trouble believing He would want to embrace us. So worthless, we feel. We are truly poor. But no, That accusation comes from a very dark and dangerous place. Jesus says, don't you believe that. Let me affirm for you. You are rich in Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 
In 1 Corinthians, he says, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apostle or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. What Jesus is saying is, if you believers in Smyrna want to affirm that I am Lord, then you have to affirm that I own everything. And if you're in me, you own everything. So walk around Smyrna. How do you like that villa up there on the hill? Yeah, you might let the occupant stay there, but know that you own it. You own the colidarium. You own the library, the colonnade, the stones, everything. You're an owner in this city because you belong to Jesus Christ. So tomorrow, who will tell you what you're worth when you get on the bus and you're reflecting on Sunday's worship? Look around. You might let the other people ride on the bus. When you get off, you might let the bus driver take the bus wherever he goes. But be very sure. You own that bus. And when you get to work, when you step onto campus or wherever you are, look around. If you're in Jesus Christ, all this belongs to you. You are rich. The second affirmation is that you are immortal and it relates to our safety. The accusation is you will get hurt if you act on your love. You're going to get hurt. And you know, there's some truth to this. Anybody who's dropped off a kid for the first day of school knows the vulnerability and the risk involved with love. Now your heart has been externalized. It's in this little six-year-old walking around. It's amazing anybody survives childhood. And parents, with that, your affection is right there. To love takes risk. And Jesus is very clear. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, he says. Paul picks up on this. He says, all who want to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. You can claim that promise. If you want to follow Jesus' way, you're going to find yourself following him against the grain. Through the crowd in the opposite direction. Swimming upstream. And it's going to hurt at times. The accusation, though, you will get hurt is turned on its head by the affirmation of Jesus Christ who says you are immortal. The careful student of these seven oracles given to these seven churches will notice patterns. They're formulaic. And the introduction and the conclusion are very significant. The introduction always comes from the opening vision in Revelation chapter 1. And it says something about who Jesus is. And then the conclusion says something about who we are because of that. If we look at the beginning of this text, we see two affirmations, one of which is that Jesus is the one who was dead and came to life. Now, I don't know about you, but my opinion is you can't get any more hurt than dead. And Jesus says, understand who it is that's giving you this word. It's the one who was dead and who came to life. You also have died. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. In Colossians 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is in your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He's saying, hey, you know what? You've already died. Well, I'm already dead? Yeah. Well, 
what does somebody who's already died spend their time doing? I mean, think about that. Just lying in a box? Well, we're not lying in a box here this morning, are we? We're doing something. So he goes on in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Past tense, Paul says, when Christ died, I died. But it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. After having died now, the mission set before me for the rest of my time on this planet is to do nothing but live the life of Christ with all my free time. Since my life is over, his life has just begun. And there's nothing you can do to that life to harm it. It cannot be hurt. It's immortal. What can you do to a guy who's already been killed? So Jesus affirms our value in him. We are rich. He affirms our safety in him. We are immortal. The one who was dead and is now alive has claimed us as his own. Finally, he affirms our potential. The accusation is this. You will fail. You will fail. I don't know who it is in our lives that gives us these accusations. Sometimes it might be our circumstances. We try something and it doesn't work and we, we, we interpret. Well, I guess I'm just not good enough or safe enough or strong enough to succeed. Sometimes it's people in our lives who have, whether they realize it or not, critical things to say about us. But most often, these are internal accusations that come from that dark place that say, you are not good enough to succeed. You will fail. Do you believe that message? Jesus says, you're going to be tested for 10 days in verse 10. Some of you will find yourself in prison. Some of you will struggle to the very ends of your earthly lives. This 10-day time frame would remind the Israelite of Daniel. Remember that Babylon is very significant in the book of Revelation, as is Jerusalem. And Daniel lived in Jerusalem until Babylon came and sacked it and then kidnapped Daniel and his three friends, uh, taking them to Babylon themselves, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And they tried to reprogram them. They tried to efface who they were, their true identity as Jews, as the people of God. They gave them new names. They gave them a new diet, not kosher. And Daniel wrestled with that. And he said, because I know who I am in relation to God, I will resist. He's brave. And he says, give me 10 days. I can't eat your meat, but I can eat your vegetables and I can drink your water. Put me to the test. Put God to the test. And you know the story. After 10 days, they thrive and they rise to the top. They succeed in the kingdom of Babylon in the same way. Jesus says, some of you will be put to the test. You'll be challenged. Your identity will be questioned. Know what you affirm about who you are. Again, the introduction, we see a reminder of who Jesus is. He's the first and the last. This is a subtle indication that we will succeed because he will succeed. It borrows language from Isaiah 41, where the Lord says to Israel, who has performed and done this? calling the generations from the beginning 
I, the Lord, am first and will be with the last. We remember Jesus from chapter 1 as the Alpha and Omega. The first is the prototype, the beginning of all, who sets all things in motion for his purpose. The Omega, the last letter of the, Jewish, of the Greek alphabet, the last, that one who stands at the end, the end of the assembly line, the, the fulfillment of the prototype, the one who succeeds because God has guaranteed the success of his mission from beginning to end. And there is a crown finally here. Verse 10, there are two Greek words for crown. One is the crown that a king or a prince would wear. This is the crown that a victor wins. Smyrna was famous for his games. And here are the images of Jesus Christ himself standing at the finish line of life, saying, this crown, life itself, belongs to you. You have participated in my mission. And my success has become yours. Jesus affirms our value, our safety, and our potential. When we give accusations, credence, fears come flooding over us and we risk drowning. But when we can stand firm and know who we are because we affirm who Jesus Christ is for us, we can live courageously. There was a famous Christian in Smyrna and I want to read to you a little bit from his Biography, one of the earliest extra-biblical bits of literature that we have, the martyrdom of Polycarp. I encourage you to Google it and read the whole thing. But Polycarp was a young man in Smyrna. I think Polycarp was the guy in whose hands this letter was held when it was actually read in A.D. 95 as a young bishop. I believe there he stood before the people of God to read this encouragement of Jesus not knowing what would happen to him 60 years later. Polycarp knew the Apostle John personally, we're told, by tradition. In fact, he was installed as bishop in Smyrna by John himself, consecrated to the task. Remember that we think this was probably written in AD 95, 60 years later, in 156, in February. There was an uprising There was persecution in Smyrna. It got very intense. And so Polycarp's advisors, now he's an aged man, urge him to leave the city. And he withdraws to the countryside. A farm. And one day, as he prays, he has a vision. It's of his pillow blazing. And immediately he senses what it means. He remembers this word of encouragement. He says to his brothers and sisters who surround him there, I will die by fire. Two servants are tortured in order to get information as to where Polycarp is hiding. One of them uh, breaks and tells the Roman authorities that Polycarp is in this farmhouse. They come knocking on the door, his captors. What does Polycarp do but offer them food? Come and sit at the table. He prepares a meal for them. He asks of them an hour to pray, and he takes two. They urge this old man not to be foolish. How valuable he is to the church, to the city. Spare your life. Say the words. What harm is there to say, Lord Caesar? 
and to offer incense and all that sort of thing and to save yourself. At first, Polycarp did not answer them. But when they persisted, he said, I'm not going to do what you advise me. Happens to be a festival season in Smyrna. And so the crowds are already gathered in the arena when they bring him in. They cheer to recognize this old bishop, this Christian leader. The proconsul is there likewise urging Polycarp to be sensible. Just say the words and be released. Proconsul was assistant and said, take the oath and I shall release you. Curse Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And upon his persisting still and saying, swear by the fortune of Caesar, Polycarp answered, if you vainly suppose that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you do not know who I am, listen plainly, I am a Christian. This doesn't go so well with the pro-council. It doesn't go so well with the crowds either. But they notice and are impressed by his courage. When, they had, when he had said these things and many more besides, Polycarp was inspired with courage and joy. And his face was full of grace so that not only did it not fall with dismay at the things said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his own herald into the midst of the arena to proclaim three times, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. The animals had been sent away for the day, and so they gather wood, sticks, and they pile them in the middle of the arena, and they bring Polycarp up. Polycarp, who had been so honored in his life, was asked to strip. He, had, he didn't know how to untie his sandals because he had been so loved by the church. They had always taken his sandals off, had to take his own sandals off, and they came to bind him to the pyre, and he said, it's not necessary. And they left him there, held by his own courage. They ignite the flames, and miraculously, or by virtue of a wind, the flames blow like a sail, the writer says, away from Polycarp, and he glows as if in an oven. So they need a sword to kill him, and they poke him, and blood pours out and extinguishes the fire, and Polycarp is gone. What the people notice is a man who knew who he was and who faced death with the greatest of courage. Do you need courage this morning? Maybe you need simply just the courage to explore who Jesus Christ is more. Be willing to get closer to him. Maybe you need courage to incorporate more of who he is, his values into your life. Maybe you need courage to face cancer or an illness that you're battling. Courage to give your time to somebody, to listen. Or your financial resources with generosity. Perhaps you need the courage to do what you've wanted to do for a while and acknowledge to your colleagues or your neighbors that you believe in Jesus and share something of your faith story with them, to take the risk. Perhaps you need the courage to undertake a new venture, a brand new ministry, a brand new business, 
Or maybe you need the courage to leave a job or a business or a ministry that isn't a right fit for you. Courage to restore a relationship. Courage to start a new relationship, to make a friend. Courage to lead a small group. Courage to be in one. Courage to volunteer. Courage to live faithfully as a single in Seattle. Courage to get married and live faithfully as a spouse in Seattle. Courage to seek healing. That courage is available to you and to me if we will but ignore the accusations of Satan and embrace the affirmations of Jesus Christ. Know who he is and know who we are in him. To you, the Lord says, as he does to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Grant to us a sense of your presence. You are with us even to the end of the age, Lord Jesus Christ. Of whom shall we be afraid? We affirm that you are Lord of our lives. You are Lord of all. And in your lordship, we find great freedom to be who you have made us to be. We pray for courage this week. We pray that those around us will notice who you are because of how we treat them, and how we regard ourselves as Christians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.